Has anybody ever dared to think or ask that question? What does God really feel about us? Or is that a bit too scary to contemplate? Because over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the fact that he's prepared a place for us. So he obviously wants us around. But then looking at creation and saying it is good is a bit different from saying, hey, Adam, Eve, love you guys. It doesn't have the same ring. It is good. Love you. It's not quite the same. We're not quite sure. And if you look at much of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, It might give you the impression that while God feels responsible for us and has a plan for us, he's not always happy about our existence. There's that little incident with the flood. And there's further instances where he expresses his displeasure. For example, in Exodus 32 and verse 9, and the Lord said, he's talking to Moses, I have seen how wonderful and fabulous these people are. Oh, hang on, wrong translation. I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. God is not happy. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation. So he's playing favourites now. So it's things like that that make us ask the question, does God really love us and consider us to be the apple of his eye. Which is an interesting question when you consider that the the idiom, idiom, the apple of my eye, is an English language one, not a Hebrew one. And uh, it's quite hard to understand even in English what it might mean, but funnily enough, it's, it's attributed to King Alfred, Alfred the Great. Who remembers Alfred who burnt the, the cakes at the hearth while thinking about how to... No, okay. Too much ancient history there. Anyway, uh, when Alfred the Great was king of England, there was a common misconception that the pupil in your eye was shaped like an apple. I'm not sure what their eyesight was really like back then, but anyway, and so the pupil was referred to as the apple, and of course as eyesight was then and is now something to be cherished and protected, um, being the apple of your eye was actually... um, an idiom for somebody who was loved and important to be cherished and protected at all costs. And it's actually, we, we actually know this, this isn't just a, a, um, you know, an urban myth about Alfred the Great. He actually um, translated into English the Latin version of something called the, uh, the Cura Pastoralis, which was written by Pope Gregory I. And so we have actually an English translation where he translates some of that Latin into an English phrase which has the apple of my eye in it. And it was actually picked up by William Tyndale. Who knows William Tyndale? No, he translated the Bible into English. It was very popular. They killed him for doing that. Um, and, but in a number of instances, isn't history wonderful? When he translated the Bible into English, And in many subsequent translations, the apple of my eye is is used. For Psalm 17, verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2, keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. And so how does the phrase apple of your eye reflect Hebrew thought about how God feels about us? Because if it's an English translation, what, what, what did uh, uh, an Israelite say? It obviously wasn't 
apple of my eye. Well, if you look for the earliest occurrences of this, there's quite a few places um, where the, the Torah talks about the love of God. But there's this really great poem in Deuteronomy called the Song of Moses. And I, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but there's certain places in the Bible where it draws the thoughts of a lot of the previous stuff together and, and places them in, in one place, in one poem, in one part of the narrative, which is what, we, what people say is extremely dense. And it doesn't mean stupid when they say that. What it means is there's a lot of information packed into a very short space. And th this um, Song of Moses draws a lot of these thre threads together. It draws a lot of other threads together, which uh, I encourage you to read and discover, but we're not going to talk about uh, today. And it presents this really dense expression of God's love for his people. So God, this is one of the times, one of the few times, I guess, that God actually expresses what he thinks of us in terms of caring, love, and concern for us. And so it's, it's, actually, it's actually delivered at a, a critical moment in the Exodus story. Who, who actually knows that story briefly? You know, Israelites in Egypt, Moses comes, they escape, Red Sea, Pharaoh's soldiers get slaughtered, they go to Mount Sinai, God says, there's the promised land, go, they say, no, I don't think so, um, and wander around in the desert for 40 years until they all die out and there's only the next generation left. And Moses is addressing this generation, they're about to go into the promised land, he's about to hand over his leadership to Joshua, because he knows that he's not allowed to go into the promised land. So he's telling them all about what's going to happen while he knows that he's actually not going to see it all. So he's a little happy, a little ticked. Um, but he, he actually talks with the voice of Yahweh to his people. Let's, let's read the relevant portion of this and let's tease it apart in the uh, 15 minutes we've got left. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8. And that starts off, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. We could talk a lot just about that particular phrase. But if we go on, it says, in a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruits of the fields. He nourished him with the honey from the rock, with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock, with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. <laughs> Does anybody feel spoiled all of a sudden? Anybody feel full? <laughs> um, now, if you've been paying attention, you'll have think there it is again. There's that phrase, the apple of his eye. And so the Hebrew idiom is unlikely to match the English one. But it turns out that it's amazingly similar and possibly an even more powerful indication of how close God wants us to be. Because the Hebrew translation or the Hebrew words that we get the English apple of your eye from are actually the little man in the eye. And if you think about it, 
Have you ever had one of your kids get really, really close to you and they really, oh, sorry, uh, they, they stare at you. Kids have this, this unnerving habit of getting nose to nose and holding your face. They want you to pay attention. Have you ever noticed you can see your reflection in their eye? There is a little man, a little woman, depending on who you are. Um, let's not go there. Um, and I think the, 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 the picture that Moses is trying to build here is God wants us that close that we can see our reflection in his eye. His concern for us, his desire to be with us is such that being the apple of his eye means that we are close enough to God that we can see our reflection in his pupils. It's even better than the apple of your eye. I mean, let, let's, let's try changing the idiom. Let's talk about the little man in people's eye. I don't think it'll catch on personally. But, but anyway, the, the implication is that God cares for us and wants us so close that he can protect us so, so close that we can see our reflection in his eyes. Now, of course, this is, this is a side point I'm going to talk about here. This is, this is for people who like to have discussions about um, different interpretations of the Bible and also a discussion for those people who, who like to talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, um, which is a, a great thing to talk about. And uh, if you're into a podcast known as The Odd Father... Um, <laughs> which is, is, uh, sort of has one important person in it. Dr. Pete Court over there is involved in that. Um, there are some discussions on this coming up, I think, in episode five, which may be interesting to some of you. But anyway, if we look at Deuteronomy... <laughs> shameless plug. <laughs> uh, yes, why not? Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. Remember, we, we read, He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. But if we look at the New Living Translation, it says he guarded them as he would guard his own eyes. You sort of think, well, that puts a totally different spin on things. And the interesting thing there is that those two translations actually come from the same two Hebrew words. So it's not a, it's not a difference in source material. It's just a question. The New Living Translation authors thought apple of your eye is an old-fashioned phrase. Nobody uses it anymore. I mean... Who's, who's used it lately? I mean, uh, I tend to think, you know, um, I can think of Brendan, for instance. He, he would say it as a sort of a, a flashback phrase, but I can imagine his father actually saying it as a real thing. So it's generations back. And so that they just took the, the idea that, okay, let's put it in perhaps more, more, more modern phrasing, something that somebody would understand. And so that, that's, that's a, a, an example of differences in interpretation of the same Hebrew phrase. But we also have one which is real, and this is only for the nerds. The rest of you just talk among yourselves for a bit. Um, no, actually, please don't. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, in the beginning there, it says, when, Moses, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now, the word Israel there is, is actually code for Jacob, because Jacob actually became Israel, and the nation of Israel came out of his name. But in the English Standard Version, it says he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you remember your Genesis story, which I'm sure all of you have just on the top of your head there, the sons of God actually refers to spiritual beings, not uh, the people of Israel. And what we actually have here is two different 
source, bits of source material. The first one is from what's called the Masoretic Text, which is a, a Jewish uh, repository of, of ancient scripture which was compiled around about 600 AD. Uh, and the Sons of God comes from a thing called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew documents which no longer exist, which was done at about the time of Alexander the Great, which is, I think, 400 BC. And so we actually have two different bits of source material here. And, and so how that happened, I think it's a great discussion for coffee after the service. But I just thought I'd, I'd point that out as a bit of an interesting um, aside as to what we're talking about here. But surrounding that, that great picture of us as the apple of God's eye, are a couple of other significant phrases. Uh, chapter 10, uh, sorry, 32, verse 10, in the first part, it says, in a desert land he found him in a barren and howling waste. In the Hebrew, this is exactly the same terminology as used in Genesis 1 when it says God created the world, the universe. He created it out of a desert, barren and howling waste. And so this is an indication that... Um, we, we were planned for. God had us in his mind in the beginning. He, we weren't an afterthought, you know, on day seven. Oh, what shall I do now? Let's create man. No, he, as soon as God started the creation of the universe, he created it for us. So we were there. We were planned for in the beginning. And the interesting thing, that's followed by a reminder in verse 13 that our existence and purpose is in one God alone. Uh, sorry, verse 12. I think it is, is it verse 12? Yep. The Lord alone guided them. They followed no foreign gods. Which is just a reminder that this, this is important, that we actually follow the Lord our God. And if you want to read on in that chapter, verse uh, 25 onwards, uh, makes it very clear why this is actually very important. Um, but we won't go into that right now. Um, but verses 13 and 14 are the ones that push all our buttons when it comes to the expression of God's love and care for his covenant people. Where it says, you know, he made him ride on the heights of the land. Who, who likes views? Getting there is sometimes a bit of a problem, but you know, we, we like to be able to look out over things. We, like, we, we are fed with the fruits of the field, nourished with honey and oil, curds and milk, fattened lambs and goats, with a choice Rams, finest curdles of wheat, really good bread, and even champagne. Because, I mean, foaming blood of the grape? What does that mean? It's bubbly. Now, it probably wasn't the sort of bubbly we're used to. That was actually invented much later on. And in fact, just as a history aside here, um, there was actually a monk in the 1660s by the name of Dom Perignon. And funnily enough... He didn't invent champagne, but he was sent out by the brothers in his monastery to stamp out this bubbly wine. Because the only reason that happened was that in, I think it was in Bordeaux or something, the, the climate wasn't quite as warm as it was further south. Uh, and what happened was when they fermented their wine, they put it into bottles. It was too cold for all the yeast to have fermented. And so when it warmed up again, it started fermenting in the bottle and the bottles all burst. And so this, as you can imagine, this was a bad thing. And so they sent him to actually find out how to stop this happening. But he discovered it was so popular, he was the guy who invented the method champenoise uh, of actually doing the secondary fermentation in the bottle. Um, 
which has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, but I just thought that was it. God, you know, here, here we have the Old Testament sort of um, what you, foreshadowing the uh, um, invention of champagne. So that's very good. So, and, and we know that this is, I, I said in the beginning, this is a poem. So we have emphasis here by her hyperbole, because we actually know for a fact that honey did not come from the rock. What came from the rock? Water. And so God's exaggerating here, but he's doing it to actually show that his love for us is such that he, you know, it, it's bigger than we can see in the immediate environment. It's interesting, in fact, that he would use this um, particular example, because of course, the second time he did it, is the reason that Moses is not going into the promised land. So that must have been a, a bittersweet sort of example to use. Um, so it's pretty clear from this passage and from others that God actually feels pretty strongly about us as humans. His desire is to bring us close, to protect, and even, dare I say, spoil his people. However, if we keep reading this poem, we discover that we do not reciprocate this love particularly well. And in fact, God's people spend an awful lot of their time ignoring Yahweh and actively seeking out all these other gods he's told us are no good. And this, of course, ends badly for his people and is an important catalyst for this New Testament concept, which we'll be discussing next week, of the abiding in him. Here we have another old-fashioned style of term, but we are actually called to abide in God. And we'll unpack that, give it a sexy title, and uh, make it a little more understandable uh, next week. But the thing is, before we abide in him, before we actually come to living with Jesus in our heart, uh, we need to get straight in our hearts and our mind and our spirit that God is not the vengeful, distant God whom we must work with to avoid upsetting, but is a loving, caring God who seeks our company as we go about his purpose. He is a God of the fruit, the honey, and the champagne for those who abide in him. But we have to accept him before we can abide in him. Could I ask you all to stand? I want us to reflect and meditate over the next minute or so about what it says. In fact, I'll help you meditate. I'll read out that section verses 11 to 14 again and as we meditate on it as we stand in a, in a quiet place thinking on what God really feels about us what he has actually prepared for us what he actually wants us to do I want to give you an opportunity to actually do something about that this morning if you've struggled to accept God's love or you currently have a particular need to be able to connect with that love or if you just want to hover in God's presence, I, want, I invite you to come forward as, as I read this and as we, as we uh, meditate on this and that towards the end we'll pray together and if you've never asked God to be your Lord and Saviour, it's a great time just to come out of the altar and uh, I'll pray with you there. And we can actually start this idea of if God loves us so much, what is the purpose and plan he has for us? How do we actually accomplish what he's asking us to do?
first step is just to accept the fact that God does love us. That what he does in our lives comes out of an abiding, deep, and passionate care and love for us, his people. So if that's you this morning, as I read, I'd love you to come forward on the altar. And don't look up because it won't appear on the screen. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch it and carries them aloft, the Lord alone led us. No foreign God is with us. He made us ride on the heights of the land and fed us with the fruits of the field. He nourished us with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your care. Bless us and make your face to shine upon us. Let us walk in your glory and your mercy all the days of our lives. Amen.